Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within the panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and with us is our other co-host. I am Drew. How's it going, in-betweeners? Hey, hey. How's everybody doing? So, if you were following us last week, uh, we, I, Albert, unintentionally gave it away, but <laughs> we've been trying to build up to the top 25 DC comics of all time. But prior to jumping straight into that list, we thought it'd be a good idea to tease you guys with a little bit by giving you a, uh, an introduction to some of the comics that didn't necessarily make the cut for whatever reason. Comics that were honorable mentions or just didn't really fit the paradigm of what we were trying to do uh, with a top 25 DC comics of all times list. And yeah, and this week we're starting with Hellblazer. This is definitely an honorable mention. We just felt like this was a comic that had such a long run with so many killer creators and stories that it was just be too hard to just pick one and mm-hmm. say that any one particular story would be on the top 25 when really it's just probably one of the most consistent DC comics for a long period of time. Yeah, this comic was 300 issues long. Admittedly, I don't have all 300 issues. I haven't read every single one of those 300 issues. Several years ago, well, maybe like seven or eight years ago, I actually started trying to collect the entire run of Hellblazer. And if you know Albert and me, when we collect stuff, the way we do it is we look for the cheapest possible method to own it. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, that means either finding really, really cheap trades at a discount price or scrounging quarter bins at the most, maybe a dollar bin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm pretty close to having all 300 issues. I I think I'm missing about eight or 10 issues right now. It's really impressive. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. And I haven't read all of the ones that I do have, but I've read a good amount of them. Mm. Like pretty much I've read bits and pieces from every single major run of Hellblazer and even some of the graphic novels and the miniseries and whatnot. Mm. We both have a pretty good handle on Hellblazer, the Vertigo series as a whole. However, looking back at our top 25 criteria, like the way we did it when we did our Marvel list was we limited ourselves to specific runs by creators. And like Albert was saying, so many great people have worked on Hellblazer that yeah. it was like really tough for us just to like decide, oh, this particular run is head and shoulders above all of the other runs on the series. Yeah. Yeah. And and we had our our criteria, which was craft, originality, impact, and withstanding the test of time. Admittedly, I would say Hellblazer is pretty high on, on all of those. Yeah. Um, again, the I think the main reason why we decided to leave Hellblazer as one of our honorable mentions was just because we wanted to do the entire series, you know, and, and if we picked the entire series, that would be cheating our own, our own made up rules. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We would have to live with that. (laughs) Yeah. And if there's one person that I'm not okay with cheating, it's myself. (laughs) Yeah. That is the reason why. You want to go into just how, like the criteria and we can or do you want to go into the creatives like the origins of the character yeah we, let's let's talk a little bit about hellblazer i don't know if, if everybody 
if, if he's as mainstream as a lot of other titles or characters, he has, he has mean, become we're, we're pretty calling, popular. Calling him in Hellblazer, but the character is John Constantine. Yeah, uh, and I'm pronouncing it the British way because I think that's how he calls himself or how he pronounces his own name. Mm. Uh, actually, I remember. Uh, comics where somebody asked him how he pronounced his name and and that's what he said and i think it might have even been in, in an alan moore comic so anyway well starting off with who john constantine is he is a character created by alan moore and artist stephen Bissett with john totalbin and i think they also got an assist from rick veach so Bissett, rick veach and totalbin were all the artist on the saga of the Swamp Thing back in the 80s when Alan Moore was writing it. Mm. And John Constantine first appeared in issue 37 of the saga of the Swamp Thing, which was June 1985, according to Wikipedia. He is kind of this cynical, chain-smoking British magician and yeah. uh, like a working-class kind of... Uh, guy who dabbles deeply in the occult and he's also a con man yeah uh he's like if you can imagine some somebody who's kind of similar to a doctor strange sort of yeah magical character but instead of being this guy who who you know calls himself the master of the mystic arts or the sorcerer supreme or any of those weird titles he he doesn't go about like that he just wears a trench, a trench coat. coat yeah and he's he's working class really but he's yeah. also not as dignified as someone like dr strange he yeah. doesn't have the same kind of moral standards as a typical hero in fact yeah. i wouldn't even call him a hero yeah he's, he's really just kind of this um like a self a self-serving narcissist yeah right yeah like they described him as basically a blue collar average joe like warlock i guess and yeah it, it, it's kind of the complete opposite of what you would imagine a, a master of mystic arts to be and that isn't to even say that his skill level is on at at the heights of someone like a doctor strange he he certainly has more magic knowledge than your average person than a lot of people actually mm -hmm. but um i think the thing about john constantine or or john constantine is yeah he doesn't have the uh the decorum and the uh i guess the mystique necessarily of someone well, what's the word for that? Where so the grandiosity of someone mm -hmm. like a Doctor Strange, you know? Mm -hmm. Because I think for the longest time we've seen a lot of comics where um, these types of characters tend to be like Doctor Strange is kind of the best example that I can think of because he's probably the most well known at this point uh, to our listeners. But you know, we imagine someone who's this master of the mystic arts, who's composed and who's. Uh, you know, wise and regal, classy—all these, all these adjectives, right? Yeah. And John Constantine is not that. He's really just a a, a blue-collar Joe, 
average person who knows magic and really this is for me personally i don't know if you would agree with this but for me i think the thing that makes a lot of john constantine story work stories work is the fact that the guy is such a sneaky slash tricky bastard you know yeah it's not the fact i mean it is the fact that he has knowledge and mastery over some magic but the larger thing that gets him out of uh his situations is that he's got the mind for trickery you know yeah absolutely so, that, that that makes him very fascinating yeah um i've had conversations with you in the past where uh i've described john constantine in my mind as as basically a puss in boots uh if you've ever read that i want to say that that's a uh what are those stories uh, uh, I, I've heard the name. I, I don't think I've actually read any Puss in Boots, but that's a fairy tale or a fable, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's based on a fairy tale or, uh, yeah, uh, I I forget what those, uh, like a Grimm's fairy I want to say it's a Grimm's fairy tale. I'm not 100% sure. But uh, for those of you who aren't really too familiar with P- Puss in Boots, it's just a story of, like, this little cat who who comes into contact with all sorts of monsters and ogres. And the way that he gets out of it is by outwitting and outsmarting all of them, you know, because that's really his only ability. And that's how I kind of imagine John Constantine uh, as this tricky slash cheeky uh, scoundrel. Yeah. at, at his best, he's that. At his worst, he's just... Uh, Somebody who gets his friends killed. Yeah, he's a degenerate scumbag. <laughs> yeah. Actually, it's worse than just getting his friends killed. He he gets his friends' souls trapped in hell or something. Yeah. <laughs> he'll, he'll sell them out for yeah. the name of the greater good. Yeah. 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 So are you saying that Constantine is... Puss in Boots meets Doctor Strange? I'm saying Constantine is Puss in Boots meets a bastard. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Here's yeah. another uh, interesting tidbit on Constantine's origin. And this is from an interview with Alan Moore. So I'll, I'll just read his quote. It's from a, an interview uh, from the early 90s in, in Wizard magazine. Alan Moore says... But I can state categorically that the character only existed because Steve Bissett and John Totalbin wanted to do a character that looked like Sting. Having having been given that challenge, how could I fit Sting into Swamp Thing? I have an idea that most of the mystics in comics are generally older people, very austere, very proper, very middle class in a lot of ways. They are not at all functional on the street. It struck me that it might be interesting for once to do an almost blue-collar warlock, somebody who was streetwise, working class, and from a different background than the standard run of comic book mystics. Constantine started to grow out of that. So if you look at those early issues of Constantine's appearances in Saga of the Swamp Thing, he really does look like Sting. Yeah. And And strangely enough, when several years ago, when... DC published uh, a 30th 
anniversary Hellblazer book, they actually got Sting to write the the foreword to the trade paperback. <laughs> so I guess That's Sting is cool. aware of Hellblazer yeah. of Constantine. That's funny. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I was going to say, I do think he looks like Sting, but, you know, take, uh, you know, whether you uh, take the second part as an insult or not, um, you know, I, I don't mean it in a, in a mean way, but uh, I think he looks like Sting in that he looks like a pretty generic blonde haired white guy, <laughs> 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 you know, so I guess Sting could be the stand-in for any blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. So, speaking of John Constantine, he had his appearances in Saga of the Swamp Thing, and it wasn't... That was starting in uh, 1985, and he showed up throughout Alan Moore's run. However... Hellblazer, the comic book series, began in January of 1988. And this was before Vertigo was was in existence. So Vertigo, the imprint, did not exist when Hellblazer first came out. It was just a DC title that was suggested for mature readers. So there was a little warning on the cover. It didn't have the comics code of approval. It, it wasn't for kids. It was very uh, adult-oriented storytelling. Mm -hmm. And when Vertigo launched in, I think it was 93, that was when they put the Vertigo stamp on Hellblazer, and it became a Vertigo series in the course of its run. So I forget exactly what issue that was, but it it was a few years into it. And the series consistently ran from 1988 until its cancellation in February 2013. As far as what happened to John Constantine, he showed up a lot in DC books starting around 2011 when the New 52 began. Mm -hmm. So when Constantine first came out in Saga of the Swamp Thing, Swamp Thing... It still took place in the DC universe, even though it was still its own corner of the world. You know, there were still a lot of stories in Alan Moore's Swamp Thing that had Swamp Thing interacting with the wider DC universe. Other characters would show up, including, you know, the Justice League, uh, Adam Strange, what have you. So it, it clearly took place in the DC universe. But when Hellblazer began they pretty much moved away from that. It's The way I think of it is kind of similar to how I think of Sandman, where it's it starts off with these references in the early issues to the wider DC universe, but as the story moves on, pretty much ignores that. And maybe there's, you know, there's a couple references to some obscure DC characters in the later issues of Sandman, but for the most part, you don't really need to read DC comics to understand or follow anything that's going on in Sandman. The same yeah. thing pretty much applies to Hellblazer. These 300 issues, you don't really need. You definitely don't need to to know any DC comics. You just, you everything you need to know about the story is in those pages. So it doesn't have any crossover bull. It, it doesn't have any uh, 
guest stars from or guest appearances from Batman not, or whatever. Yeah, it's not something that falls into the category of sensationalism mm-hmm. in that it spends all this time trying to use the traditional tactics and gimmicks of normal comics to try yeah. to get to you. What it's really selling you is on the idea of these are quality stories about this character. Um, like, I don't even, like, yeah, I wouldn't even know if the selling point was necessarily that John Constantine was going to, you know, like, they, it wasn't necessarily that it was, like, this is Batman, right? It's not the equivalent. It, it, like, saying that John Constantine is in this comic is not the equivalent of saying that Batman is in this comic, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's it definitely was geared towards i want to say like serious readers yeah definitely you know? mature yeah. readers older mature readers. readers yeah people that weren't just looking for superhero fisticuffs yeah. and this was coming out of a period of in time where like you said like uh vertigo was something that started around 1993 i think you mentioned and mm-hmm. that entire imprint was something that came out with the aim of showing that comics weren't just for kids, that comics could be uh, a serious medium uh, mm-hmm. taken taken seriously. Yeah. So you had a bunch of titles that were coming out that didn't focus on um, fisticuffs as much as it focused on ideas and storytelling. And you had stuff like Hellblazer and you had stuff like Sandman and, you know, the list just goes on and on. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. There's something there, there's something to say about how the only gimmick that Hellblazer really featured was intelligent storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. Because when you I think about the crime of the book, it was... It. Sorry, what was that? I said I now wouldn't want to denigrate it by calling it a gimmick. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I was trying to denigrate other books that relied on actual gimmicks. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. Shouldn't intelligent storytelling always be the goal? Yeah, that should be <laughs> the baseline. <laughs> yeah. What were you gonna say? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, man, I don't, I don't remember anymore. But it, I don't think it was anything too important. It was probably just gonna be like the funniest joke in history. <laughs> but I guess it's just lost forever now. Uh, moving on to. So what uh, I had mentioned earlier, right around 2011, the New 52 happened when DC revamped their entire line of superhero comics. They did a big publishing initiative to re-streamline their continuity. I mean, in my opinion, I think it just overcomplicated things and made it a lot dumber than it ever was. Yeah. But when they did that, they also brought John Constantine into the traditional DC superhero universe. Mm -hmm. And at this time, the Vertigo series was still going on. And they had brought, uh, at that time, Peter Milligan was writing Hellblazer at Vertigo. But Peter Milligan also was writing, they had him write this series called Justice League Dark for the new 52 and they wanted to have him use John Constantine in that book. So for a while he was writing two different versions of the character 
in these two different, completely different continuities. Somehow, during these past 10 years, Constantine has become more popular than ever, I think. I mean, first of all, maybe about, I don't know, 15, 16 years ago, there was that Keanu Reeves Constantine movie. Uh-huh. So, so clearly that says something about how this character has endured for quite some time and does have some presence in the popular consciousness because Keanu Reeves played him in a movie. But even in the past, I don't know, like what, eight years or so, there was there was a Constantine TV series. It only lasted one season, but yeah, there was a Constantine TV series. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was... I guess it didn't last that long, but it existed, and that's more than what a lot of other characters get. Yeah. And on top of that, actually, I forgot to uh, to piggyback on that thought. Um, even after they canceled the show, from what I remember, they took the character and the actor that played him, and he was on, like, a season, if not... if uh, He was on a season of Legends of Tomorrow, which is one of their ongoing DC mm. shows. And okay. He might even still be on it, but I I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I, don't I don't watch it, so I don't, I don't know. Watch it, so but I, yeah, I, I, I heard that too. Yeah, he, yeah. I think Matt Ryan is the actor, and he also plays Constantine in the cartoon movies in the yeah the animated. They uh, made a bunch of cartoon movies. Yeah, so he's been in quite a few of them. They've they've done at least one Constantine movie animated movie that was solely based around him and he's shown up in yeah a few other ones like they did uh justice league dark movie and i don't remember how many they did uh i know he was also in this one called apocalypse war or something uh-huh it it was uh it was pretty bad yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was pretty bad actually you know what i think uh vertigo voices that other podcast uh they focus on Vertigo comics and Vertigo-related kind of stuff. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. one of their most recent episodes might have been about that Apocalypse Now movie or Apocalypse War movie, and and uh, John Constantine plays a pretty big role in that. For whatever reason, that whole that movie was the culmination of the DC animated universe that they had started. I don't know, ten years ago. Yeah. So it it was supposed to be a you know a big thing being the final story. That was that was their uh end game in <laughs> right. War. Right. And if you watch that movie, it's just not good. Yeah. It's yeah. I believe it. It didn't look appealing. Yeah. Um like yeah, even even with the news that uh, you know the movie, the movies are done and uh, the show didn't last uh, more than a season, there was even news recently that they're rebooting the show, so, or you know they're trying to make another John Constantine show happen oh, with a new actor or the same guy. I believe it's a new actor. Uh, I th- I thought you were the one who sent me. Oh, I think I don't remember. Don't go uh, blaming that on me, Albert. <laughs> uh, now, now it's making me doubt uh, my memory. Oh, new Constantine show. Let's see. 
anyway, uh, while you look that up, I think it is interesting to note how Hellblazer, the series, was able to last for such a long time and build build up a lot of, I guess, respect for John Constantine, the character, to the point where, I guess, even DC, whoever was in charge of editorial and making those decisions at the time, or Dan DiDio or somebody, yeah, they they wanted him in their in the DC main universe, you know. Yeah, and they and saw him that, as a prized property. Yeah, yeah, they wanted him up in there acting around, uh, palling around with Superman and Batman yeah. and Wonder Woman and all all of them. You know what I think it is? I think it's because Alan Moore created this character. Yeah. And DC is constantly trying to dick him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. Exactly. No, there was a period of time where they just went all out and just like and it was just uh a sequential use of his stuff in in random comics. And if I was Alan Moore, I'd I would see that as just a re- repetitive fu to him. Yeah, you know, totally. Um, I was gonna say, yeah. Uh, they they announced a, a a Constantine show coming in 2020, 2022 on HBO Max. So. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now I do remember that article. Yeah. So there is a new. See, like, he's a property that they really want to make work. Yeah, I never watched the TV series that lasted one season. Did you ever watch that, Albert? I watched the first episode, and uh, I think it had promise, but it was just not something that I wanted to keep up with, just because I had a lot of stuff on my plate anyways. Was that on network TV? I wanted to say it was on NBC. Okay, so I guess it was a little toned down compared to something like Hellblazer. Yeah. Kind of like a sanitized Constantine. Yeah, so what we're probably... I mean, which might make sense for their move to HBO Max because now that it's streaming, they can do all the stuff that they think people want. There are no limits, all right? Yeah. John Constantine is going to roll up and he's just going to... Shoot someone in the face. He's gonna <laughs> punt a baby. <laughs> he's he's gonna be pushing old women downstairs. <laughs> I wish you were a professional writer on these shows, man. <laughs> I would watch that. <laughs> well, we did mention that he was a bastard, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is true. Uh, yeah. Oh well. I was going to piggyback on some of the things that you mentioned earlier, some of the ideas mm-hmm. and I, I guess hypothesize as to why John Constantine continues to be popular, at least in the minds of DC, in spite of the fact that, you know, uh, as a, as a show or even as a movie, like I don't think it did very well. Like the movie that they came out with, I from what I remember, it like set itself up for a sequel, but I don't think it ever got one. Yeah, I didn't watch that movie because yeah. I thought it was I thought it just looked stupid. When I saw the yeah. commercials for it, it didn't look like any of the Hellblazer comics I'd read. I mean, they gave him didn't he have 
wasn't Keanu Reeves wielding a shotgun shaped like a cross or something, like a holy shotgun? And, yeah, it looked know, like a blasting magic dudes. Yeah, yeah, it's like, come on, man, that ain't that ain't Hell's Laser. Yeah, yeah. I I ain't interested in that, so I, I never I never watched it. Yeah. And yeah, and like we said, the the show only lasted a season. Um. If I had to guess, I do think that we're in an era of. I I do think there was a period in in DC where they they bought into the idea that everyone wanted grim and gritty. So you know we ended up getting things like the Snyder Cut and Zack Snyder's Justice League and you know Batman v Superman and all that and. I have a feeling what they wanted to do was they saw John Constantine as something that would be a natural fit for that kind of mm-hmm. uh, that dark direction aesthetic, that yeah. aesthetic. Yeah. And they thought that they could cash in on it. And I think if I had to guess, I think that's why they keep trying to make it happen because there's so much TV out there even now that tries to be very dark right mm-hmm. you know we live in the in a post breaking bad era we live in a post sopranos era where you can have these really dark anti anti heroes and i'm sure they looked at john constantine and they just thought if we just do a really grim and gritty version of this guy who's already pretty grim and gritty like it should just sell itself <laughs> yeah you know, I again, I don't I'm not in their uh, creative uh, uh, workshops, so I have no idea what what goes on behind the scenes. But if I had to guess, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's what they were thinking. Yeah, most likely. So Hellblazer definitely had an impact not only within the DC universe, but I guess even in pop culture, at least relatively compared to uh, a lot of other comic books uh, that have been around, especially for something that isn't a household name. It's surprising that it got a movie during an era when they weren't making movies of everything, you know? Yeah. I guess nowadays it's it would be less surprising if, if they made uh like a ragman movie or whatever because we've we've gotten like guardians of the galaxy we're we're about to get eternals so we've gotten everybody at this point so yeah you gotta just you know hit the bottom of the barrel yeah everybody's got to strip mine everything until it's just the dregs and even then they'll throw those out there but i i feel like i have to stand up for ragman i don't think ragman's the dregs i like ragman (laughs) I like Ragman. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I, I just meant in terms of uh, name recognition. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's that's fair. That's more than fair. I'll yeah, give you that. Yeah. yeah. The the dregs would be would be something like uh, no, the King in Black. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling we're gonna see Null sooner than yeah uh, in a movie before we see Ragman. <laughs> We're we're gonna see null within the next five years. Yeah, totally. I'm totally confident of that. Yeah. 
<laughs> Jeez, why? <laughs> why? Here's so, a question for you, Albert. Yeah, sure, shoot. But I was going to ask you if you think that a sanitized John Constantine is worth telling stories about. Like, is it like the the new 52 John Constantine and the the John Constantine Hellblazer comic that took place in the DC universe under the normal uh, restraints yeah. of those kind of comics. And I'm also thinking about the TV series that was on network TV. So obviously there were some limitations there as well. Do you think if those limitations are in place, is it still worth it trying to tell a Constantine story? Okay. So before I answer that question, I've, I wanted to mention one other thing. Mm-hmm. There was also an advertisement I saw not too long ago for a YA young adult John Constantine comic. Oh, I forget that's right. what it's called, but it's interesting to me that they were even trying to market John Constantine to little kids or yeah. young, young adults, right? Yeah. That's the line of uh, comics for kids or younger yeah. readers. It was I've cartoony heard. looking, and, yeah. you know, he wasn't, he's obviously not going to be just a degenerate human being. Like, I'm sure he's going to be substantially different from the Constantine, Constantine that we know. Uh, but he's not, and it's just something that's going to scar <laughs> little kids. <laughs> then I commend them for their commitment. <laughs> um, so I guess to me, this goes to the, this goes to the question of what are the core elements of a John Constantine story? And I think for me, John, like a hell, a good Hellblazer story is one that's hard to do because it actually requires that the writer is actually pretty clever with how they tell the story, right? So I mentioned earlier that in my mind, I envision John Constantine as a trickster or as Puss in Boots, essentially. Mm-hmm. And those kind of stories are hard to do because... When someone tries to tell that kind of story where a person has to outsmart another person, yeah. um, one of two things either happens. You, you you either have to be able to set up a convincing trick that or yeah, you 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 have to be a competent enough storyteller to be able to set up a convincing trick. And mm-hmm. the other thing that you want to, to not happen, rather, is that you you hope that the writer doesn't cheat in the sense that they use some sort of random deus ex machina. Or if they do do a deus ex machina, at least have a compelling reason or, or uh, you know, have a compelling reason for us to ignore what the resolution is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, something within the uh, the story that that has some substantive meaning that that points out that hey, this this magic thing that he pulled out of his butt to solve the problem, like that's really just to put it away. But the real story is, you know, what's happening beneath the surface. Mm-hmm. So that being said, like I don't think that John Constantine 
necessarily needs to be like grim and gritty or full of violence and uh, viscera. Sure. If that's what you mean by sanitized version of of uh, of John Constantine or of Hellblazer, mm-hmm. like I think if you can tell a story where he's so the other thing I was going to mention is when I imagine John Constantine as a trickster, that means that the stories that work best with him are ones where he is. Uh, up against a wall where the odds are against him, you know, mm-hmm. because I really do feel like that's one of the running threads to ev- through every John, uh, Hellblazer story is that he's he's always the one that the odds are stacked against, and it's his ability to outsmart or trick his way out of that situation, right? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't require that he necessarily be in a situation that's uh, overly dark or messed up or disgusting or whatever, as long as that element of it is uh, pure or as long as that element of it is well done, I can, I can buy into a John Constantine story that where he is uh, portrayed as this cheeky, witty, tricky bastard Mm-hmm. That's that's the main thing that counts for me. Okay. Even, even though there are a lot of stories, even the ones that we read for this episode, where he just has to deal with just disgusting, uh, monstrous things, you know? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's not necessarily for you. I guess you're you're saying that it it doesn't need to be. Uh, aimed only for adults but it's possible to do like a mainstream kind of constantine story as long as you keep those core elements in place it yeah i'd say yeah. so yeah and the only thing i th- i th- i think about that is that it's pretty challenging to do that when you strip away kind of the i guess the the popular ingredients in most Hellblazer stories, which tends to be demons and death and, uh, you know, basically yeah. the, the threat of, of damning your, somebody else's soul to, you know, to be trapped by some demon. Um, like there's well, a, there's also all the smoking, like, I don't know if, oh, like, that's why I think like, for I didn't a YA consider story, that unsanitary. Have, uh, <laughs> sorry, what was that? I said I didn't consider the smoking unsanitary, so... Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I was just thinking about that, uh, like, young adult... St- or that that kid's comic you were talking yeah. about. Like, it's it's weird to me that they would even uh, bother with that, you know? He has a lollipop in that. <laughs> yeah, it, that, it just makes it seem like a, a joke. Well, I was going to say, it, it kind of reminds me of this one episode of uh, The Twilight Zone that I saw. It was, like, a 1980s version of the twilight zone heck actually you could even take some of the older versions of the twilight zone the original rod sterling twilight zone yeah and there are stories where a normal person would take on the devil in like a card game or something like that right yeah and it's really you could do if someone did a story where constantine was playing a card game with the devil and they were just talking about the stakes 
like I don't know if that necessarily counts as unsanitary. Like I I personally don't think that that's too bad, but you know, uh, if they tell that story where he's playing this card game and he outwits the devil, like in terms of like what we're actually seeing, it's there. You know, I don't think there's necessarily anything in there that needs to be like rated NC-17 or anything like that. It yeah, it could be yeah. a compelling story in and of itself. It's it's not violent like Invincible yeah, exactly, or something. Exactly. 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 <laughs> but I, you know, while we're on that note, like, um, you know, when we talked about uh, Constantine being revamped for the new Fifty Two, mm-hmm. it does remind me of uh, the Ray Fox Constantine that came out in that era, and although it's not one of the ones that made it on our list, I did read a little bit of it, and I do think i think he went into it fully aware of the fact of like the insurmountable task that was handed to him because yeah i'm pretty sure he knew what the core elements of constantine were and the absurdity of putting him in there with superman and batman and all that yeah and i think he tried to do the best story that he could within those confines so, yeah, it's something that's unfortunate for that ser- for that particular series, but it's something I'm 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 still collecting right now. I'm missing two issues, but once I get it all, I, I hope to give it a full read and to you know assess it accurately. Yeah, yeah. I I do know that when Ray Fox was beginning his run on that. On that series, uh, I read in an article. The there's an article about the secret history of John Constantine by Abraham Riesman on Vulture.com. Mm-hmm. And Abraham Riesman is the guy who wrote that biography on Stan Lee that came out earlier this year, which I would also recommend reading. But yeah, anyway, in this article, he did interview uh, Ray Fox briefly, and Ray Fox basically said that. For him or his perspective on on writing that series is that he's writing the real Hellblazer. That was the only way that he could think about it. So in his mind, there are Hellblazer stories. And I guess that's the mindset that you have to have if you're writing John Constantine, no matter, no matter, uh, no matter what the circumstances are. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's, I I feel bad for him a little bit. It's kind of like, you know, finally getting to do, you know, it's it's like finally getting to play in the NBA, but you're playing for the Nets or something. Well, the Nets are a dominant team now. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> pick a scrub team, I don't know. You're, you're yeah. right, I, I forgot. But... Yeah. We're so used to the Nets being bottom feeders. <laughs> they just naturally come to mind. <laughs> I guess you could always go with the Knicks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're going to be bad for a while. <laughs> well, so what about you? What are your thoughts on a sanitized... I guess, I guess the thing I was going to ask in, was, 
you know, what you meant by sanitized, because there's, I think there's a bunch of different ways that you can interpret that. Yeah, I kind of left that up to your interpretation. I didn't really define what I meant. Y'all uh, can't define me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're many things, Albert. You're many things. <laughs> I can't place limitations on you. But I was going to say that in terms of how I view Hellblazer as a as a concept and John Constantine as a character, it, to me, it's it's really hard for me to take anything that isn't the Vertigo series seriously as Constantine. Like to me, that character exists in those 300 issues and related miniseries, and everything else is just it's not really him. Yeah. You know, like it, it's characters that maybe look like him and even sound like him, but deep in the pit of my heart, I recognize that this is just a pretender, you know, like this isn't, this isn't something that, uh, I mean, it could still be good. Don't get me wrong. It could still be good, but it, it's not, Yeah. it's something separate from the 300 issue run of Hellblazer. And Do I guess that's the real Constantine are gone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I guess I feel the same way about any time I see characters I enjoy uh, adapted for some other medium too, you know? Yeah. I feel the same way about seeing Marvel characters in MCU movies. I recognize that they're just, they're not always the same as what I'm familiar with and what I, what I've been reading for years. But that doesn't mean that I can't enjoy them, you know, like a lot of yeah. them and even a lot of them are just as good in some cases, even better than the comic book versions. So it, I guess the authenticity isn't necessarily the most important thing. It's more about being true to the spirit of the idea. So it doesn't have to be like a direct. Uh, a direct continuation yeah of the character and i like i'm okay with thinking of john constantine as these 300 issues of hellblazer and then yeah. everything else is you know that's something separate and it's it's definitely not what i prefer but mm. i think i do try to keep an open mind to it it's just that if i read too many bad stories with john constantine teaming up with Superman to punch Darkseid in the face, I might be inclined to stop giving him a chance, you yeah. know? <laughs> so. Well, congratulations, Drew. You've uh, shown more self-awareness and maturity than most comics fans and fanboys. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could always create a bunch of burner twitter accounts and harass whoever it is is writing the comic now you know maybe maybe uh find out where they live and and uh, go to their house and just harass them in person <laughs> you know really let them know that i'm not that i don't approve of what they're doing <laughs> <laughs> that's not my constantine yeah exactly <laughs> hashtag not my constantine <laughs> It's tough, though, man, because 
I do think he's a great character, and I want, I do want more Constantine stories to to exist and and be produced. I just don't really care about Constantine stories that take place in the DC universe. Actually, they're they're just a lot less interesting to me, is what I'm saying, I guess. Yeah, I was gonna say it's kind of interesting now that you mentioned now, now that you just said that to think with all this like black label stuff coming out that you know they keep trying to shove down our throats i'm kind of surprised that we haven't seen a a constantine black label comic yet yeah i mean he would be perfect for it he kind of would they're doing jeff lemire and doug madkey are doing a black label swamp thing comic yeah right see so So. hopefully there will be some kind of hellblazer comic at some point it might be the closest thing that we see to the Constantine Constantine that we knew. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. It would suck that it's not a Vertigo book, that it's a Black Label book, but at least it'll be a self-contained story by hopefully a creative, a talented creative team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of the constantine that's been trapped in the dc universe there's also this quote from peter milligan because when he was writing the vertigo series there was a bit of overlap when he was writing both versions of the character and even he i think recognized that one version was the true constantine you know Mm. and when the vertigo series ended up getting canceled and we only had the Justice League Dark Constantine. Milligan said, when New 52 Constantine became the only incarnation of this character, he just becomes some British geezer that does some magic. <laughs> you know? That's, yeah. That pretty much sums it up. Yeah. And I, I think too many people who have gone on to write these DC-centric Constantine appearances basically just treat him as a british geezer that does some magic and there's no real there's nothing compelling about that yeah yeah well it's it's kind of like that thing that we talked about when we did our uh, black widow episode right mm-hmm. where in order to make black widow uh someone that you can market to kids or even the masses in general they had to, yeah, they had to sanitize her or they had to smooth her rough edges, right? She and, couldn't be a child killer. Yeah. And as we all know, I want my heroes to be child killers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what makes them heroes. <laughs> <laughs> if you're not willing to kill a child to save a life, then what kind of hero are you? Yeah. Good. That's a great point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I never that's why. It that way before. <laughs> <laughs> that's why superman in uh in uh in Zack snyder superman he was a real hero because he wiped out an entire building full of civilians so that he could save other civilians <laughs> that's what real heroes do man they make heroism every day that's heroism <laughs> but um yeah uh, uh yeah so they in order for uh constantine to be to have mass appeal 
like they had to be able to smooth this guy's rough edges enough so that he could be on a team with other super people, right? And I don't know. That's just not a thing that I guess that at at the very core concept of what John Constantine is about just doesn't really mesh because uh, at his worst, like if you take the idea of him at his worst, uh, you mentioned that he was this narcissistic uh, degenerate earlier, Drew. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like that's that's not a quality that works well in a team. Yeah. <laughs> just, um, do you want to go over that Garth Ennis quote uh, that we read earlier? Yeah, yeah. Because so, I think it's a good insight into the character. It, it really is. And this is another uh, quote that I found in the Abraham Reisman article on Vulture. This is what it this is what it says. So from the article it says Ennis in fact is the only one of Constantine's writers to openly repudiate the character. But it's not because he feels squeamish about what he wrote. It's because he's come to find John morally loathsome. And here's the quote from Garth Ennis himself. I've known a few too many lovable rogue slash wide boy types in real life to find the notion attractive. People who abuse their friends disappear for a while, then come back and do it again because they know they'll be forgiven. I have no desire to write a character who essentially gets his pals killed and then explains that they were doomed anyway. So why not just spend their lives and use them up? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean that's that's pretty much John Constantine's modus operandi. Yeah. He at his at his worst. Yeah. yeah. Like, and you mentioned it earlier. It's not even that he gets them killed. Like in in certain situations, he damns them. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Like, like an one eternity of, of damnation. Always... What's that? I said an eternity of damnation. Yeah. For the greater good. <laughs> And and usually that greater good is just preserving his, his own life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like one of the most defining uh, pieces of John Constantine's backstory is how when he was younger, a young man, still getting the hang of, of magic, he actually damns the soul of an innocent little girl because he was trying to save himself. <laughs> Yeah, and that's that's pretty much haunted him the rest of his life. He spent I forget exactly how long. It might have been like a year or something, but he spends like a bunch of time in an insane asylum because him doing that to that little girl drove him mad for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, he, so it's it's always been something that that's haunted him. Yeah. So I, I would imagine that uh you know, if they made an MCU version of of him it wouldn't be like that at all it'd be like the black widow thing you know like he yeah there's no way that he killed a, a little girl <laughs> someone someone tricked him into thinking he killed yeah. a little girl yeah. <laughs> so that, yeah that, that, that's a big element of hellblazer i think ennis hits it right on the mark it's john yeah. constantine is he really is somebody that you would not want to be friends with yeah like, he is morally loathsome. Like the thing that he describes almost makes John sound like a sociopath in the sense that 
again, there there are a lot of different uh, portrayals of Constantine, and there are certain portrayals where he's actually rather charismatic, you know? Charming. Charming, exactly. And But it's like Garth Ennis said in that quote, where these people enter your life, and then they exit it after they've gotten what they want, only to come back and uh, turn on that charm, only to do it all over again, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. But the difference being that with John Constantine, like, it's not losing a hundred bucks or, you know, uh, someone wrecking your car after they borrow it. Uh, with John Constantine, when he does it, someone dies or someone goes to hell. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Who would want that in their lives? And I just thought that was a really interesting um, way to look at the character. Yeah, definitely. And Garth Ennis is one of the most well-known writers um, of Hellblazer. His runs, one of the most respected runs. One of his stories, Dangerous Habits, is considered probably... Maybe the, one of the high points, if not the high point of the series. And I think they even used that story as a loose basis when they were doing the Keanu Reeves movie. I mean, I never watched the movie, so I, I'm not sure. But I, I think I remember hearing or, or reading that at some point. And he had a, Ennis had a substantial run, so you know that he had a good feel for the character and the concept. Mm. I, find it, I do find it uh, fascinating that... He personally found John morally loathsome. Yeah. It <laughs> I, I kind of wonder if he had like a specific uh you know person in mind <laughs> that he was envisioning yeah. <laughs> when he was describing <laughs> John Constantine cuz it really did sound pretty specific. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. I, yeah. I'm sure I'm sure he had an experience with somebody like that. Maybe not Somebody who directly messed wronged him, but yeah, probably somebody that wronged somebody he cared about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's interesting to think how this character is still generally portrayed as this charming guy, and despite all the all the bad things that he's done, or the or just the kind of the the trail that he leaves in his wake this trail of of harm to others usually people who are either innocent or even people who are close to him heck even all of his lovers like bad stuff happened to everybody he's ever loved you know yeah so but it kind of makes sense that he would be that charismatic and even appealing on some mm-hmm. level because if he was a doofus It'd be like, <laughs> yeah, people would see right through him, right? Like yeah. he wouldn't be able to necessarily trick his way out of a situation if he was yeah. just, you know, just some moron. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. And I, I think uh, what this made me think of was part of our conversation from last week's episode when we were talking about Invincible. And just how we were talking about how how far is too far, you know, like how like 
once you cross a certain line, how can people still consider you a, a hero? Mm. How many how many bad things can you can you do before you can't uh I guess call yourself a hero. Yeah, yeah. I mean, why yeah. like wh- why are people giving somebody so many second chances, right? Like thinking yeah. about Constantine, like he's a guy that like every why don't why don't people just stay away from him because they know he's not a great person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's there's just something about him that that uh draws people into his orbit. But that's the thing that makes him such a compelling character to us the reader is yeah. that ability to manipulate our emotions in a way that we can't even even if we find him to be a disgusting person it's he's a disgusting person i want to read about yeah right <laughs> it's what makes him tick what makes him what makes us respond to him the way that we do in spite of just how gross he is you know um yeah it's just a lot of very introspective work that i would like to believe that most people can be uh interested in right just Mm -hmm. the idea of reflecting on human behavior through this story you know Mm mm-hmm yeah, and I think that's one of the things that Hellblazer at a, at its best does do effectively is it does cause you the reader to consider the human condition essentially, right? Like yeah. you're, it makes you think about about moral standards and and I don't know. I mean, it just depends on the story, I guess. But there's yeah. there's always something in the story in a good hellblazer story that that gives you food for thought even if it's i mean it it could be something it could start with something as simple as human beings are reprehensible (laughs) yeah but i think if you dig a little deeper you can it it also sheds light on what makes people so bad like what is it that and and it's not just not necessarily just referring to Constantine himself here, but you know other characters can can uh, express that idea as well and the things that he does to them. Yeah. Even even uh, the way that he's able to use his his wiles to to trick people and to trick uh, he even tricks demons and you know does all these these uh dangerous things that and succeeds in in these dangerous things where he's able to to trick these higher powers yeah those those are all like pretty interesting um surface elements of what yeah. you know of just a a cool story but there there's always something interesting in in the motivations of the character of, yeah. of John Constantine, where you just see a different facet of selfishness, or what is it that drives him? Just learning how this character is willing to go to these different lengths to protect himself or to 
get something that he wants, even if it's going to hurt somebody else who doesn't really deserve to be hurt. Yeah. That's what really makes these stories fascinating, I think. Or at least that's why I'm drawn to them. Yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of what you said or what you've said in the past about how even, you know, as a reader, we have to be able to separate ourselves from... To some degree, we, we need to separate our emotional selves from our uh what we're reading in the sense that we can be captivated by this story and not necessarily have to like the character yeah i don't identify with him yeah exactly exactly and it 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 just kind of made me uh i just had a thought about you know just listening to you talk and it made me think about something like like the joker like that that movie that they did with joaquin phoenix uh a couple years back Mm -hmm. and i have a feeling you know this is another thing that they were also trying to bank on when they did this character or or you know in terms of popularizing this character right like yeah the it's it's that weird appeal to people who want this anti-hero that they can root for who's just another bastard yeah you know and i like i i don't know why it works for uh uh constantine but it doesn't work for the joker like i like i i don't want stories where i'm rooting for the joker to be the hero you know yeah, yeah, and I'm sure when that movie came out, I, I'm sure there were people in the audience who found themselves identifying with the Joker, you know, just that yeah. sense of, oh, I've been put down on my life, too, and, and everybody's, you know, walked all over me, woe is me, like, yeah. the only response I can have is to lash out at, at this world. I'm sure people kind of vicariously took that as a thrill, even yeah. though I think the movie, I think that movie does kind of present it as thrilling as opposed to presenting it as something repulsive mm. but i i don't know we're, we're not really here to talk about joker i, I don't yeah. i didn't i didn't think too highly of that movie to be honest i found yeah. i found that movie morally reprehensible <laughs> <laughs> all right so you want to go into the some of our stories that we that we read uh for the episode yeah man let's dive into them Sure. We, we each had a couple of picks, so... Yeah. The first one that I picked was uh, Haunted. It's one that is by Warren Ellis and by... Uh, written by Warren Ellis and art by John Higgins, I believe. Mm-hmm. This is Hellblazer issues 134 to 139, yeah. by the way. It's colored by James Sinclair, uh, lettered by Clem Robbins, edited by Axel Alonso. Just in brief, it's a story about John Constantine. He he finds out in the news that an old love of his, not even love, but girlfriend of his, uh, was murdered. And he goes on the trail to, to track down what happened to this girl just out of nostalgia and to... I guess you could say to do her right or, you know, bring her justice, I guess. 
mm-hmm. and it's just about him encountering you know various other mystical practitioners people's practitioners exactly uh in in England as he tries to find the the one responsible for killing his his ex-girlfriend mm-hmm. I'm trying to did you have any thoughts on it drew yeah I, th- I think this was a pretty interesting story first of all from a visual standpoint mm-hmm. because Compared to a lot of comics, this comic uses a lot of negative space in its storytelling. I could definitely like, see that. Yeah. Like the only thing that I can think of that comes close to it is uh, Bendis and Michael Gatos on Alias, mm-hmm. you know, the very first Jessica Jones series. Because, like, like Alias, this story in Hellblazer has a lot of pages where there are only a couple of panels on the page with a lot of white space and just a small amount of text in the white space next to the panel. Like I'm looking at the two at these two pages right now from the first issue and one of the pages is just two big panels but they don't take up the whole page and there's just a few lines of text uh, under and next to them. Mm-hmm. And then the another page has three panels and like they don't take up the whole page either there's a lot of white space and i I think it's an interesting tactic technique uh that is used all throughout these issues kind of gives you the sense of i don't know there's like a a loneliness to it all where he he definitely feels alone and i think it also makes things I think it makes the presentation come off as a little bit more poetic because there are some passages here that are written with, I guess it's kind of a hallmark of, of Hellblazer, but there's a lot of not colorful writing. like pur- I want to say like purple prose, but I also don't want it to, to sound insulting like it's known for being overly wordy or flowery. I just yeah. think that there's a lot of writing that is done with maximum effect in the space that it's in and a lot of this negative space here just gives you the sense that things are just strange uneasy he's he's walking through the city london is a big theme in in this story and, and it's about a haunting because she's literally his ex-girlfriend who was murdered is literally a ghost who's stuck or trapped in this little park Playground. Yeah, yeah, playground, playground. And he's trying to free her ghost, so he's walking around looking for clues and whatnot. It's really ambient. The story's really good at creating a sense of, of place and a sense of mood just through the combination of the, the words and art. Mm, yeah. I don't think I'd read it before uh, before this one, uh, before doing this episode, actually. So it's it's still pretty fresh to me. There's still a lot to process. But I did find a cheap copy at the Apple, and it's, you know, it had a good pedigree, and I, I definitely had to check it out. And it's interesting, you know? I, I think the thing that struck me about it is, and, you know, I could be wrong, uh, so feel free to tell me, but his version of Constantine, it you're when you say that London plays a big part of it, I, I definitely felt that. It felt, for whatever reason, well, one, Warren Ellis... I, I don't really know his background, but he's British, right? Yeah, he's British. Yeah, so it it felt especially British reading this 
And mm-hmm. it, it's interesting comparing it to the other comics that we read this week. But yeah, just in terms of how Constantine talks and the places that he references, it felt very steeped in England, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so like that that definitely was a vibe that I was getting from it. Um, like even at the beginning of the comic, there's a scene when he's talking to a cop source of his, uh, this police officer that he's using as a source to mm-hmm. start tracking down clues. The, the, the cop is talking about how, uh, you know, um, they're in the Tony Blair years of the prime ministership in England mm-hmm. and how, you know, people were afraid that it'd be a completely different world than, you know, the Thatcher years. But if anything, it's it's been richer for them than ever, you know, in terms of how they've been able to operate. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, I, it might not be like the deepest cut in terms of, you know, understanding British society, but I did it did still jump out at me just how, I guess, how much commentary and, uh, yeah, how British it felt. Yeah, Um, it's kind of like you were mentioning earlier when you talked about how John Constantine is just this very, like, I I, I don't know if iconic, but, you know, like, iconically English character, you know, like, that's just very steeped in England. It makes sense. He is British. Yeah. So that was one of the things uh, that I noticed. Um, there were some other interesting bits, too. Uh, they were talking about, I think, Aleister Crowley at one point. Yeah. And, um, you know, that was another... He's he's kind of a famous mystic in England. But I thought that was pretty interesting how they referenced him and just kind of used him as a point of point of reference for like just the kind of mystics that uh john constantine was dealing with in their world mm-hmm. yeah yeah he's he was a uh, an occultist i think yeah I, I, I was gonna say he was a satanist but i don't i don't know if he was a satanist i guess he's more an occultist yeah yeah one of the things about haunted i feel like it we kind of probably should address it especially uh in light of what we have learned about warren ellis in in recent years yeah (laughs) or or within the past like year and a half or so so i i guess for those of you listening who, who aren't aware Warren Ellis was exposed last year as somebody who used his influence in comics to to take advantage of women. Mm. Uh, I mean, how how else would you describe it, Albert? Um, yeah, that's I think that's a pretty accurate description. He he was a very big name. He was uh, very popular and well known and. Um, he was in a position to get in, get in contact with a lot of women and he took, 
he used that to to take advantage of the circumstances for his benefit. He was a very horny dude, apparently. <laughs> he slept with a bunch of ladies. Okay. He, yeah. He, he manipulated and 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 uh, lied to a lot of women. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. There you go. There we go. So I think one of the things that that adds an unex, unintended uh, layer of irony to to this comic is is that so much of the story is about Constantine wanting to do right by this ex girlfriend of his. Yeah, like he's trying to bring her soul to rest. He's he wants to avenge her, and there's all this stuff in here that that portrays uh, her killer as you know just this sick puppy and and he you know he basically just took advantage he's a dude that had no regard for her as a person yeah yeah he took advantage of her because she was interested in in his ability to to do magic like this yeah this guy that constantine is hunting the the guy who killed the girl he was kind of a low-level magician who was trying to use her as a focal point for some of his other magic yeah and it ended up killing her because he just used her because well you know, he took it, advantage of her. I mean, my understanding was it didn't even kill. It wasn't even that that killed her. It was just that he used her up, and when he was done with that, he just messed with her just because he yeah. could. Yeah. You know. Uh, yeah. So, so it wasn't even that his magics were were the thing that were killing her. He he had he had gotten everything he had wanted out of her, and once he was done getting that. He he just threw her out, like it. Well, it wasn't even throwing her out because if he had thrown her out, then she would have just been gone. But he he like abused her, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and murdered her. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this one line where uh, I forget what he says, but I, I think she ends up prostituting himself, prostituting herself, and you know, Constantine's asking him why. And the guy's just like, just because I did it because I could. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. And then there's and, this whole scene where, where Constantine finally, yeah, when he captures the dude, he 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 tortures this guy basically as an act of revenge. Yeah. He so, what he does is he takes a bunch of acid and he like jams it down <laughs> the down the dude's throat. And then before the acid can kick in and really like just mess the guy up. He throws him, uh, you know, so for those of you who aren't necessarily familiar, acid has hallucinogenic properties. So what they did was he, after he shoved all these acid tabs down the dude's throat, he threw him into a a corpse fridge, basically, and locked the dude in there so that the guy would be stuck in this... Uh, in this enclosed space with this corpse right before he starts tripping balls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, 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 it's almost gleeful in how, uh, yeah, it's kind of like the ideal revenge that someone would want to commit on somebody else that wronged them, you know? Totally. Um, totally. Yeah. It's, it's the kind of thing that, you know, the, the people fantasize about when they're at their worst. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that that's why I thought, man, it, it's it's weird to know that Warren Ellis 
yeah. wrote that after we know. I mean, relative to some of the other stories, this this one portrays him as almost as kind of noble, right? Like uh, John Constantine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, because he's doing this because oh, you know, it's not I might necessarily not... for himself. It, it's for his his girl. Yeah. His yeah. This girl. It's not even a girl that he was with anymore. You know, it was someone that he once was with, and he just feels obligated by you know uh, emotional attachment or whatever to release her spirit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, so it, it's just weird to know that Warren Ellis came up with this story. Yeah. After we yeah. know, after we've learned what what he's really like. Yeah, it's it's definitely something that he was blind to <laughs> in yeah. terms of his own behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You want to move on to the next one? One more thing I did want to say about Warren Ellis and Hellblazer, though, was uh-huh. he, there was a story he did in, in Planetary that was a f- pretty fascinating commentary on Vertigo, as well as the character of John Constantine. Do you remember that story, Albert? Yeah, it was the one where they were going to a funeral for uh, mm-hmm. a character, and I forgot what the character was supposed to be a stand-in for he was a stand-in for constantine yeah you're right you're right he was a stand-in for constantine exactly and uh yeah someone had mysteriously murdered him and they were trying to track down who the murderer was and ultimately what ends up happening is they find out that he had faked his own death just to get the murderer out in the open so that they could so he could kill him kill Mm -hmm. the guy that wanted to murder him and yeah. uh, and he ends up. I I forget what the specifics of of that final speech were, but uh, the general idea that I remember walking away with was him talking about how stories change and how he had to change with it, you know. Uh, yeah. How he has to change with the times, and he he ends up taking off his whatever disguise or clothes he's wearing at the time and he goes from john Con- john constantine to becoming spider jerusalem <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah which is another character that uh which is a character that warren ellis created mm-hmm. yeah or another vertigo series transmetropolitan yeah did you do you remember any of the details of uh what he was saying uh no, in terms of you, its commentary I think you captured it. it okay. It's something that uh, I think is a worthwhile read for anyone who is interested in Hellblazer comics and, and the character John Constantine. And that's in Planetary number seven. You want to move on to your next pick, Albert? Yeah. The next one that we did was Hard Time. This was one that was written by Brian Azzarello and drawn by Richard Corbin, the, you know, late and great Richard Corbin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this 
Well, one, first of all, I we Richard Corbin is someone that we've mentioned before uh, in other episodes. And yeah, and that just, one episode we did with uh, Shanice and Zach last year when we were talking about our post-apocalyptic stories. I, my pick was Punisher at the End, which was yeah. written by, by Garth Ennis and drawn by Richard Corbin. Yeah, and it's it's just worth mentioning that his art is just spectacular it's it's especially great for a hellblazer series because uh, because of just the dark subject matter and uh you know just for a story that's about the grossness of human nature his uh his art captures it that perfectly you know Mm -hmm. um he's really good at drawing unsettling looking people i mean everything in his world looks very unsettling there's something a little bit creepy or a little bit off but it's just so visually appealing that it it it, his drawings is really really well done like he this guy clearly is a master of the form but his style just has there's just a quality to it that Number one, it doesn't look like anybody else's artwork that you've ever seen. Yeah. And and number two, there's just something strange about it where everybody, everything in 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 the world in his world, just looks a little bit off. Like you you wouldn't wanna you wouldn't wanna visit. Yeah. The world that he's crafted. Well, I was gonna say, or ask you rather, like, would you say that? His art is intentionally like reaching the uncanny valley. Mm, no, not not necessarily, because I I think there are certain faces and and certain people that he draws that look pretty realistic. Uh huh. But there are other times when his drawings look more like caricatures. Yeah, that's true. I can see that. It's just that yeah. the some some of those like the way that I think it's the way that he blends those elements, the mm-hmm. way that he blends this realistic style with people that look like caricatures, and he kind of goes back and forth on the page, even just between facial expressions. Like there are some scenes where even Constantine looks pretty grounded, and then you look at a later panel on the page and he's smiling and that just yeah. looks freaky, you know? Yeah. And the smiles that he usually draws on these people, on his characters, they've usually got just the biggest teeth with the widest yeah. grins and it's super creepy, you yeah. know? And they've got big buggy eyes. Yeah. But again, like his art, his his technical artwork is just it's there he knows how to draw but he's it's the fact that he's intentionally drawing them this way yeah that's the thing that makes it unsettling you know yeah and he's so good at it It, yeah yeah you can just look at any random page and be entranced by the i don't know just like the shading and the the weird little angles that he picks sometimes the texture of this, especially in these issues, is it's pretty great looking in, in just how mm-hmm. gritty everything is, you know? Yeah. Just 
it look feels like they're just tiny little dots of like sand and grit and dirt on everything even on on like the skin textures of people you know yeah it's almost like pointillism or something the yeah, way that he uses yeah. uh these little dots and small really small lines to to shade things yeah so i'm gonna clarify uh, the issues that we're i'm talking about in particular were from a story called, arc called hard time which was from hellblazer 146 to hellblazer 150 mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it starts off in medias res with just john constantine in jail and in an american prison of all in places an american prison. yeah exactly <laughs> So what what ends up happening is John Constantine ends up going to jail. He's just kind of dropped in, you know, out of the blue. Uh, you know, we as the reader aren't really privy to the circumstances of him being here. But, you know, we see that he's here. And Richard, again, Richard Corbin's artwork just captures perfectly just how disgusting and disturbing this world is right and it makes perfect sense because prison is not the kind of place that you want to be mm-hmm. and uh yeah yeah so over the course of the five issues uh john constantine is introduced to various factions within this prison and uh they're all basically trying to either harm him in one way or another. Uh, And it's just a story about how ultimately how Constantine bests all of the various gangs that either want to rape him or kill him or use him. Mm -hmm. And just how the entire prison just descends into an even worse version of hell just by him being around, you know? Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, it's it, it kind of reminds me of that one scene in Watchmen where Rorschach's in prison, and they're trying to, you know, everybody's trying to, all the, all the prisoners want to get at Rorschach because, you know, he was the guy that put them all there, mm-hmm. but he messes one of them up really badly, and he just... Uh, it's it's set off panel from what i remember but uh or off scene from what i remember and what they said was someone was reading a a quote of what he was saying which was y'all seem to think that i'm trapped in here with you but in reality you're trapped in here with me yeah (laughs) classic Um, moment yeah yeah so like the first story like introduces um john constantine to this character by the name of trailer and this dude's just a big menacing dude who um there's no real nice way to say this but he sodomizes other inmates (laughs) you know for his pleasure and he sees john constantine come in and he knows right then and there that he wants to uh, he wants Fresh to get meat. it this guy yeah exactly and you know the whole time the whole story sets it up right at the beginning with this guy just befriending Constantine and 
you know, showing him the ropes, showing him around the place. He gives him a pack of cigarettes. And the whole time, uh, you know, other people in the prison know that this is just going to lead to bad things if he if he takes these cigarettes. And the story ends with the gang approaching John Constantine. And, you know, you think that this is going to be a situation where he's going to, you know, he's going to get sodomized. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh you know how he resolves it it doesn't really show what he does all you know is that he takes these cigarettes from all the gang members and he pr- proceeds to do something off uh you know off camera or off scene or whatever and later on when they try to get at him in the jail the uh in in the bath showers they go in there and he walks out of there scot-free with a smile on his face and you none of us <laughs> see what actually happens but when you go into that scene uh all four of the guys that were in there to rape him they're just clawing at their faces they're just <laughs> in tears they're just an utter mess on the ground <laughs> and just time after time it's just this sort of thing that happens and I mentioned earlier how like um the trickery aspect of Constantine for me is a big part of it and mm-hmm. I don't necessarily want a Deus Ex Machina or something like that but this is a situation where the Deus Ex Machina works because what he does here is so heinous he leaves it up to our imagination to figure out what what he did like what we imagine is probably worse than whatever he could have actually put on paper you know yeah 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 it it and because of the way that those guys are drawn crying on the floor <laughs> there's a lot of things that you can imagine and that that's some yeah. really effective storytelling right there yeah yeah um one of the things i really liked about this story is how it focuses on Constantine as the ultimate con man. He's in there with all these hardened criminals, people that are doing life sentences and stuff, all these different gangs. These are hardened street people. Yeah. Who have, you know, they've, they've done a lot of stuff to be put in here. And they're he navigates, monsters. Yeah, they're monsters. He navigates the, I guess, the prison society, right? Like, he navigates it. Um, to the point where he ends up, anybody who tries to cross him, they end up like those guys on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's just able to, to, I don't know, just trick people somehow, bluff his way. Like, there's literally a scene where he's he's playing, uh, I think it's poker. He's playing yeah. a card game with, with uh, some other guy that's looked at as a, you know, a really hard guy because he killed killed people and he's there for life and this guy has a bad temper so if you play cards with him you got to be careful yeah but Constantine doesn't care about that man he he straight up bluffs the dude and and looks the dude in the eye and makes the guy fold on the on the final bet and yeah. it, it's just and at the end the, the guy is like so mad he he wants to look at Constantine's cards and Constantine had nothing <laughs> Yeah. 
And this was like the biggest guy. This dude was like the biggest dude in the in the jail in the entire jail. He was the one that everybody was afraid of. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's such a good job of portraying Constantine as this uh, trickster. Yeah. That's one of the things that that uh, you've been harping on, man. And this 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 element is definitely highlighted in in this story. Yeah. There's uh, this other one arc where, or not arc, but part of the story where um, I thought it was a pretty funny, funny thing. Because what ends up happening is at one point, this one, basically the 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 kingpin of the whole jail, uh, this guy by the name of Stark, he what he ends up doing is he ends up faking a murder to. He, he he fakes a murder, not not fakes a murder. He murders someone and gets Constantine blamed for for that murder, right? Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is uh, Constantine ends up having to s- go to solitary confinement as a result of uh, that murder. And uh, so we don't really see Constantine like we see him in bits and pieces and we know that he's in solitary and he's just kind of he's beginning to talk to to shadows and hear voices and stuff but really what's what's interesting is all the stuff that's going on outside as uh you know slowly you can see that people in the jail are beginning to like lose their minds over little things you know yeah and as almost a horror movie aspect to it yeah quality yeah, yeah, it's just slowly ratcheting it up, ratcheting up the whole time, up to the point where it just becomes this mad frenzy with Stark killing his, uh, you know, his his second in command stooge, and it just ends in this just full on prison riot, and the entire issue ends. Well, okay, prior to that, you see there's this one page where Constantine's just sitting in a corner and he's like jonesing real bad for a cigarette but he can't right (laughs) yeah and you just see him in the corner and then uh the the next mid mid panel is him you know in in shadow so you only see part of his face and then the last final part is you just get a straight up look at his face and he is just demented (laughs) (laughs) yeah demented is a good description yeah and then you know the the so the the jail, the entire jail breaks out in this riot and they're just going crazy. And the final page of that uh of that issue ends with all the prisoners breaking into his uh solitary cell and everyone's just giving him a cigarette. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Can you imagine all this happened because he was just craving a cigarette? Yeah. Actually, that that calls to mind another element of this story that I think is pretty fascinating, and that's the, the how it portrays Constantine as this. He's almost the, like this otherworldly force mm. compared to a lot of other Hellblazer stories where Constantine is the point of view character. This one, he's not really the point of view character. Like we see, yeah. we see him through the eyes of the other prisoners here. Normal, well, quote unquote, normal people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So like so many other Hellblazer comics, we see them, we see the story through through Constantine's point of view, and there's a lot of internal uh, narration from Constantine himself, and you know that that's kind of like modus operandi for a lot of these Hellblazer comics. So for this one to take kind of the the opposite approach where he's 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 basically the monster of the prison you know like everybody it's it's like you said earlier man everybody else in there is trapped in trapped with him yeah i I think that's a really unusual look at the character it's not something that is pretty typical of of a constantine story usually he's the one that we follow around but here there's something more mysterious about him like a lot of the magical elements they're not they're not really um explicitly depicted we just kind of see the outcomes right like we don't yeah we don't see him uh you know make a salt circle and drop pentagram or you know whatever Same it is chant that or something yeah, yeah yeah exactly we just we just know that he's doing something and yeah. the fact that we don't know exactly what he's doing but it's making everybody else act that way yeah that's yeah there's something frightening about that no, exactly it's 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 what i was saying earlier right where you could look at that and it might be a deus ex machina but it's really more for effect if you really think about it right because mm-hmm. instead of having him do like like you said a salt circle or like some sort of chant or a prayer or something like that like if we actually saw that it would make it less mundane but because he he's not really the point of view character because we're observing him through a lot of the characters that are around him mm-hmm. it's even creepier not knowing yeah what, what it is he's doing exactly and and like it's so i mentioned before this prison is just a hellish prison because they are just Compared relatively to some of the other uh, Constantine Constantine stories that we read uh, for this episode, like this this run or this particular story arc was pretty graphic in just a whole bunch of different ways. Mm-hmm. I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and I think one of uh, the things that I thought Azarello did a particular good job of was he has a way of coming up with these ironic punishments that you know yeah. for for all for all of the uh you know violent criminals that are trying to get at Constantine he, um they always end up getting their comeuppance and Brian Azarello does it in a way that is just filled with the sweetest irony you know absolutely and and the one that always gets me is um i'm that one guy that we were talking about the the guy who's the 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 kingpin of the prison stark at one point you know he 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 thinks he's like the biggest fish in the place and he's he's uh you know nobody can do anything to him he's Mm -hmm. he's uh undisputed he can just he has impunity and complete run of this prison, you know, even though he's a prisoner here. But again, we don't know necessarily what uh, John Constantine does to him. 
Mm-hmm. But it 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 almost feels like he infects him with an idea. You yeah. Know? And what ends up happening is Stark is just so obsessed with Constantine. And it's a growing obsession that just grows so much over over such a little bit of time that he eventually he's just like losing himself uh, and telling himself that he just wants Constantine to be his friend. He loves Constantine. He just wants him to be his friend. (laughs) And like the very last time we see him, he's just this blubbering mess on the floor, just begging Constantine, just saying, why won't you be my friend or why won't you like recognize me you know and it's it's kind of the sweetest kind of ironic punishment that i can think of for you know so in in haunted we talked about how uh you know uh constantine doses this guy with acid and locks him in uh, a casket with a corpse but the idea that you could infect someone with self-awareness or obsession as a punishment that is just too good it's not violent but it'll ruin a person you know (laughs) there's just something about that idea yeah it's it's pretty creative yeah i see it right here i'm looking at it so at the end okay so so how the story arc ends is uh, a federal agent goes in there to make a deal with Constantine. Like the the prisoners have taken over the prison. They've all gone crazy. And this federal agent goes in there to to talk to him. And he's just like, what can we do to get you out of here to make this deal? So they strike up some sort of deal and John Constantine ends up walking his way out of there. And this guy Stark is on the ground and he's just yeah, he's just a blubbering mess and he's just going play with me and (laughs) it's just and you know this was the dude who thought he was like the king of hell's kitchen (laughs) yeah yeah the the other punishment that always stood out to me was that character you mentioned in the beginning trailer the guy that was sodomizing that other dude The way that Constantine gets him is pretty messed up too. Yeah. Like like this one, the, you get a little sense of the magic that Constantine does because he, yeah. like, there's a scene of him smoking a cigarette inside uh, Trailer's cell, and inside Trailer's cell, he has these posters of naked women, and Constantine smokes a cigarette in there, and I guess he rubs some of the ashes, like just one one ash, like on his thumb makes a thumbprint next to one of the posters. And then the next day when trailer comes out during uh, all the commotion during the riot at the prison, everybody else sees him as the naked woman in the poster and he gets (laughs) gang raped to death. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's it's pretty brutal. It's super brutal. Yeah. And even the guy that he was raping at the beginning of the story is one of the guys that ends up raping him. It's it's pretty ooky and pretty disturbing. It's, yeah. And the, the thing that makes it even creepier than it is, is that the moment, like, the scene where you see everybody in the prison looking at him and they think that he's this really buxom naked woman, like, the very next, and then, and then like, they all jump on him and, you know, start grabbing and everything. The very next page, you see Constantine 
sitting in a corner in his cell with this really crazy, demented-looking grin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's such a crazy... Ugh. Like, it looks like a face that the Joker would have. Yeah, yeah. Though, the one thing that I wanted to uh, make a final note on this was... So, in the final issue, we find out why he was in jail to begin with. And it's because there was somebody who came to Constantine and asked Constantine to kill him because he was in trouble. And Constantine chose not to. He wouldn't put this guy out of his misery. So, um, you know, the guy gives him a gun and Constantine chooses not to be the one to end his life. And he gives the gun back. And, and the guy ends up killing himself. And because of that, he ends up going to jail because, you know, all the lawyers and the criminal system, uh, the court system basically said that he was the one that did it. And even though he could have fought back, he chose not to because on some level he felt something like guilt for what he did, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's still a testament to... I think it's true to 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 the idea of Constantine that we've established so far, which was, you know, he wasn't even doing anything for his own sake here, but he didn't do anything to help this guy or stop this guy from killing himself either, you know? Yeah, that's true. And, and yeah, like, uh, we, we mentioned earlier, like, uh, Constantine at his worst is this, is just this narcissistic selfish bastard who doesn't really care about other people but at the same time like another running thread is uh throughout his stories is that he he lives with the guilt of these things but it's in moments like this that makes you that makes me question like does he really feel that guilty yeah (laughs) (laughs) you know like he it almost feels like he wants to feel bad for a little while it's like he understands what humans are supposed to feel like, and he tries to imitate that. Yeah, right? <laughs> He's like, I'm going to go to jail because I feel bad for myself for doing this thing, but now I don't feel bad anymore, so I'm just going to get out, you know, yeah. if you're going to offer me the deal. Yeah. Not not only that, like, I, I drove this entire place crazy. Yeah. Granted, it was, you know, in his own self-defense, but still... uh. You know, I'm sure a lot of, you know, cops or guards, guards, yeah, a lot of guards ended up getting hurt that didn't deserve to get hurt. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Man, Constantine, he truly is a bastard. Yeah, but this was a a pretty good arc, and uh, but it's certainly not for the squeamish. I will say that much. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. Uh, Azarello's first arc on the series, and interestingly enough, he I believe he was the first American writer to write Hellblazer. Mm, mm. So most of the writers, or if, if not all of the writers up to up to that point, had been British. I think most of them were either English. Uh, Garth Ennis, I think, is Irish. So it, I guess it kind of makes sense why... Azarello might want to bring Constantine to America. Yeah. This is only the first 
part of uh Azarello's overall story like the yeah. the later issues or the later arcs in his run have Constantine traveling uh across the country I think and and dealing with different going through you know different adventures in America it's definitely one of those stories that kind of stands apart just on on uh that bit of trivia I guess the yeah. idea of him in America being written by an American yeah. I guess it's more common now. Yeah. Speaking of going to America, the next story that I wanted to bring up is the Hellblazer original graphic novel, All His Engines, by Mike Carey and Leonardo Manco. Now, this is an OGN from 2005. I guess it came out kind of during the height of the movie era popularity. I guess they wanted to make sure they had some something special to put out so that people in case people who who liked the movie wanted to read something mm-hmm. mike carey was also the ongoing writer around this time of the hellblazer series this particular graphic novel stands on its own so you don't actually need to have read his run to make sense of the story here to summarize what happens in all his engines constantine has a best friend named chaz so chaz is like the one guy in his life who for whatever reason he hasn't really had to suffer a gruesome fate like a lot he of hasn't screwed him over <laughs> yeah he hasn't screwed him over so they they, they do have a, a genuine friendship with each other and what ends up happening is that in london a bunch of people it's some kind of mysterious plague where people end up in these unexplained comas and because of that they end up uh like there's no real medical uh reason that the doctors can understand so chaz his granddaughter uh trisha falls into one of these comas and he asks constantine to see if he can use magic to 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 do anything for her yeah and long story short it and it it is it does turn out to be this demonic uh Demonic. It's mystical in nature. Yeah, it's mystical in nature. There's a demon involved, and Constantine has to go to Los Angeles to to you know progress the his job, and he he ends up encountering the demon that's responsible for the coma. And what Constantine does is he he ends up making a deal with another demon to fight the demon to that uh, put the girl in the coma mm. and it ends up just becoming this kind of, kind of a complex uh, backstab between where he pits both of these demons against each other. And even at the end, he still, he still risks the life of Chaz's granddaughter and yeah. he, on a bluff. <laughs> like she's this, just this little girl, you know, like, a, I don't know, like eight or 10 years old or something. And he he basically risks her life on a bluff um, to you know just to come out on top. So, yeah. Just by a hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I I don't think that's really a spoiler because when you read these stories, you, you just expect Constantine to come out on top somehow. Like he. Yeah. Maybe the people around him get screwed over, but he's usually okay, you know. Yeah. And the and the fascinating thing about this story in particular is just how willing he is to 
to you know put somebody's life to put a, a little girl's life in peril and, yeah. and maybe you can make the argument that her life was already in peril but then it kind of just goes back to what garth ennis was saying in in his quote from earlier where he was like uh constantine is the kind of guy that would risk somebody's life and just reason or use the rationale that oh that person was gonna die anyway so it was no big deal if I had messed up. You know? Yeah. That's kind of like his attitude towards things. Yeah. Like he's so casual with using, uh, with gambling with people's lives. Yeah. It, yeah, it, it almost feels like it's, well, worst case scenario, they're dead anyway. So yeah. <laughs> might as well go for the most riskiest, uh, uh solution. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, this was a comic that was uh I think it's it's got a lot of critical acclaim, you know, it's 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 always up, upheld as one of the Constantine Hellblazer stories that you know, that um that it's people evergreen. point to. Yeah, evergreen. Yeah. There we go. Exactly, exactly. They they even made a movie uh based on it. Uh, one of the animated movies called City of Demons. Mm, yeah, I haven't watched that one, but you saw it, right? Yeah, it was made by, uh, or it was written by J.M. Diem. So. Oh, nice! He did the screenplay. Yeah, so it, it's interesting the little differences that that they did. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. Uh, like that. The the movie version. that story that you told earlier where uh where Constantine as a younger man ends up uh sacrificing a girl in order to save himself mhm so in city of uh or in all her engines all his engines that part of it wasn't included in this in, in the story but oh, okay. in the animated film they they tied that into uh the story into the the other the secondary story or the main story for all of his all his engines so yeah so the little girl in in the animated movie is still chaz's might even be his daughter in the movie i forget but okay. but what in what ended up happening in the movie was he made a deal with the, this demon <laughs> and as a result uh Chaz's was imprisoned uh within this demons to he felt obligated to go and free her to help Chaz, you know? Mhm. So that was that was how they told that story. Um the other big difference I mean, I don't know if I'd really want to ruin it, but the ending is different. I'll just I'll just say that much. Um, okay, that's fair. I, I, yeah. I'd say I'd say when you get to the end of uh, all his engines, uh, I'm I'm not gonna say that. Well, when you get to the end of all his engines, Constantine walks away the winner, and 
he doesn't it doesn't really feel like he lost anything in in his engagement with this demon mm-hmm. so i'd say yeah i'd say he walked away a, a pretty clear winner and in the movie you don't really get that impression <laughs> i see okay yeah. yeah that's interesting yeah i really like leonardo manco's artwork he's probably one of my favorite hellblazer artists he had a long run because he also drew Mike Carey's, most of Mike Carey's issues. Uh-huh. And he also drew Denise Mina's issues uh, right after the Carey run. And he did this graphic novel. So he did quite a bit of work on Hellblazer. And I, I yeah. think just personally, his the aesthetics of his style, it, it really I find it really appealing. And I think it suits the character really, really well. He does a really great job of drawing Constantine smoking cigarettes. Like there's something so atmospheric and moody about every single shot of Constantine in these comics, in these, in these, uh, in these pages, man. Like he, I really like how he draws him. Yeah, I like the design for that demon that he created too. Um, mm-hmm. The the one that he made a deal with to backstab yeah, that, that uh, Aztec. Yeah. One. Yeah. I mean, it's basically just a giant skeleton with dressing, but I still thought it looked really cool. <laughs> yeah, totally. He, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's just a great design. Like, there are some other scenes that are more uh, where he he gets to cut loose with with the uh, wild imagery. Like, there's a scene where he basically gets to look inside the like a a portal to a, a private hell of this other demon where. The demon is keeping the little girl's soul, and like yeah. the imagery there is is pretty fascinating. Yeah, it, it's all like disturbing, but so interesting to look at. And his yeah. artwork has, like, it's it's so inky. Like some of it kind of reminds me of early Jay Lee stuff from from uh maybe like the '90s era, but it's not that. like overly so. And it like the there's just a clear sense of uh, he like he knows what he's doing with the inks, you know. Like that's that's what I really appreciate about his artwork. Yeah. And being in Constantine's story, it it's definitely darker. Like there's a lot of dark shading, and even even the uh, the coloring by Lee Luridge, it's there's like a certain filter on it. Where even on this in the scenes where they're outside in Los Angeles during the daytime. Like it, it still feels like a dark place mm. because darkness follows the Hellblazer, man. Yeah, yeah. That's just how it is. Really good story. A great, a great starting point, I think. If you just, if if anyone just wants to check out a Hellblazer comic. Yeah. You want to move on to the next one? Yeah. Yeah, the next one that I wanted to highlight is another Leonardo Manco drawn story. This one is Empathy is the Enemy, written by Denise Mina. And this is issues 216 through 222. So Denise Mina wasn't on Hellblazer super long. I think her run might have been only around like 13 or 14 issues or something. So it's basically two trade paperbacks. Uh, the first one is called 
like I said, empathy empathy is the enemy. And I like it goes well with the second volume of her run. Like if you want the full story, read both of them. But I I do want to just highlight this one because one of the funnest things about this story I mean, the premise is right there in the title, man. It's the idea of <laughs> of John Constantine being infected by a spell that makes him feel empathy for his fellow <laughs> man. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a funny concept. <laughs> but it, it's not really, it's not played for laughs, but just, you know, just metatextually speaking as a reader, like I, when I... When I heard that was the premise of the story, I was like, dude, I got to check that out. <laughs> like, that is a creative idea for an enemy that Constantine has to face. <laughs> <laughs> and, he is not know, the dude suited for it either. <laughs> it, he is absolutely not. Like, once he starts feeling the empathy, he's like, he spends the rest of the story and the next, uh, the next part of Denise Mina's story uh, trying to get rid of this empathy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just, just to briefly uh, give a synopsis of the story, he, he ends up meeting this other guy who, who comes to him for help. And through some twisted turn of events, this guy is involved in some stuff that has a, there, there's some kind of like an empathy spell. And when Constantine helps him, he becomes infected with the empathy and now he can't get rid of this feeling. And it's about him trying to investigate the source of this empathy because in some, like, I don't want to spoil it too bad, but there is an explanation in, in the story as to why too much empathy is, is a bad thing. And if you read the the second volume of Denise Mina's run, like there's a pretty funny way where it, it, it's a pretty amusing resolution to to the whole storyline. Uh, I I don't want to spoil it because it, it's worth reading, but the the payoff, man, it, it's got a great payoff. And I, I like Denise Mina's run because it's just pretty easy to to get into. Like again, you don't need to know anything else about Constantine, you don't need to be caught up on his continuity. You can just jump in with issue 216 and be drawn into this story. And Leonardo Matko's art, again, like everything I said earlier still applies here. It's, it's just great, gritty, realistic art. And uh, there's also the, the aspect of Denise Mina being the first woman to to write Hellblazer. So it, it's, I don't know if, if you're familiar with Denise Mina, but she's a pretty famous Scottish crime novelist. She's written a bunch of crime novels. I've read, read f- at least four of them. So I, like, I, I liked her. I, I think, I think I started to like her because of this Hellblazer comic. Like, I think I read this Hellblazer comic and then I was like, I thought she was a great writer, so I, I tracked down a bunch of her novels. And one of her novels is called Deception. That's probably one of my personal favorites. If anyone out there listening is interested in, in reading a, a done-in-one crime novel, Deception by Denise Mina is definitely worth looking into. Mm. 
she's a she's also Scottish, so a lot of the story in in her run takes place in in Scotland. So John ends up going to Glasgow to help this guy uh, in the story. It's yeah, man. Like this is some good stuff. It's uh, again, there's just there's just something deliciously ironic about how Constantine gets cursed with <laughs> empathy. <laughs> like it says a lot about his character that that he would consider that a curse. That's pretty. That's pretty. That's pretty funny. Yeah. I like it, man. I like it. Mm. We we can keep moving, man. We let's uh, talk about uh, your other your your next pick. Yeah, I picked uh, an arc called Scab. Um, I don't have the issues in front of me. I have it. Yeah. Uh, it's issues 250 to 255. Yeah, and this is by Peter Milligan and uh, Gordon Goran Sutska. I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. so the the scab trade paperback uh, contains two stories. Like the first story is the first three issues of the run. Yeah. And that that story is called Scab, and and that one has art layouts by Giuseppe Camincoli and finishes by Stefano Landini. And then the final two issues of the trade paperback is a story called Regeneration and. That one has art by Garan Suzuka and yeah. uh, inks by Rodney Ramos. Yeah, friend of the pod. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So I love Garan Suzuka. Yeah. Super uh, underrated artist. Super underrated. So Scab. Yeah, Scab is an interesting story. Um, I'll try to be brief in in it, but it starts out with. Constantine waking up, or not waking up, but uh, Constantine discovering a, a growth on his chest, and over time, the the growth uh, begins to consume the whole of his body, and uh, the girl that he's seeing at the time, I forget her name, Phoebe. but Phoebe, yeah. She ends up taking a piece of this growth with her, because she's a doctor, and she wants to try to cure him and eventually he goes on a a journey to to cure himself of this ailment and the the interesting thing about this story is it almost feels like the the mystical ailment itself is really kind of a a secondary story even though it's got the main title Mm -hmm. um because it really feels like the story is more about John Constantine as a person and how he behaves in relationships and just how toxic he is essentially. Yeah. Um, Cause what, so, so what we end up finding out about the scab is that I forget what the specific details were, but he, he ended up performing some act of mysticism for, uh, I believe it was like, you know, early on in his youth, he he performed an act of mysticism 
you know, for money, basically. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is um, the one person who was uh, affected by this ends up cursing him with this this growth on his body, you know? Mm-hmm. And once Constantine figures that out and kills this dude, or or I, I don't even know if he kills this dude. I forget what he did to him. I think he, like, tied him down and set him on fire or something, right? Yeah, I mean, he looked dead. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I, let's presume that he's dead. But But it really felt like all that stuff was just kind of... Uh, yeah, it wasn't really the main story. The main story was really, uh, you know, how John Constantine behaves when the chips are down and how he's willing to just disregard the people in his lives, you know, which is interesting because the word scab is used as the title of the, the story arc. And it's about how this thing on his chest is essentially a scab. But we look at the different ways that scab as a word is used in this story mm-hmm. because the guy that was cursed uh, or that was affected by uh, John Cost- Constantine's spell early on, he was a scab in the sense that he decided to turn against his union, you know? Yeah, he, he like crossed the picket line or something, didn't he? Exactly. He Exactly. Uh, no, he... I think he took money. He took money. Oh, okay. For work. Uh, when you know, when all his other coworkers or you know union allies were trying to stand unified in, against their uh, employer. Mm-hmm. But what ends up happening is, oh yeah, yeah. So the other way that you could look at the scab here is as a growth or as an infection, right? And in some ways, there's even a line towards the end of of it where you can look at John Constantine's personality as being similarly a scab on just how he infects the people around him because of yeah. how selfish he is, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a great title that works on multiple levels. Yeah, totally. Like, I thought it was super interesting how, like, the main uh, ailment of the story wasn't even really that big of a threat, right? It was really just a a scenario that was established so that we could get this character study of John Constantine as the man and how how he is uh, under, under pressure, you know? Like... At one point, this woman that was trying to help him, the, this woman that's that he's currently in a relationship with, he ends up, yeah, he he basically tells himself this narrative that oh I'm trouble or I'm danger or whatever, so I'm just gonna ditch I'm just gonna ditch her I'm just gonna yeah. you know, leave this relationship why because you know he's convinced himself that. It's the noble or heroic thing or whatever. You know, he tells himself something like, oh, I'm trouble. So, you know, don't you shouldn't be involved with me anyways. But yeah, realistically speaking, 
real relationships don't work that way, you know? Yeah. So. He and, treats her pretty callously. Exactly. Exactly. It's, and, you know, after everything that we've said uh, about John Constantine in this episode, about how there are more than enough instances where he ends up, uh, there are more than enough instances where just simply by proximity, the people around him end up getting screwed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting that the story ends with him and Phoebe. Uh, he goes back to her and he wants to try to reconcile at the very end of his story. And she, she basically just says, no. Yeah. You know? Good for and, her, man. Yeah, exactly. Good for her. She had enough uh, integrity and good common sense not to. <laughs> it's the smart thing to do. Stick exactly. around John Constantine long enough and something bad's going to happen to you. Exactly. <laughs> which which is another interesting thing because, I, you know, I, I haven't read that much Hellblazer or John Constantine comics. Uh, certainly not as much as you, but... I don't know if uh, that happens very often, you know? Yeah. 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 It's, it's one of those things where you just don't want anyone to develop any sense of closeness with him because it's just going to end pretty poorly for the other party. Yeah. And his, his, I guess you could call her his one true love when Garth Ennis was writing was this woman named Kit and yeah, their, their relationship was also really fascinating, but also very painful to read. And the way that ended, um, I mean, she, it didn't end gruesomely for her. She was able to, to leave him, but I think the, the scars or the pain of the whole situation that's always been something that has lingered with him like other writers would occasionally bring that up you know like it it wasn't something where once she left his life and another writer took over they just moved completely you know yeah she didn't under the exist. Rug. yeah she she definitely left an impact on him too um, and obviously with Phoebe, it's a whole different situation because they weren't in a in a long relationship like that. Mm-hmm. So, it you know, it, it's for the best, man. It's for the best. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the funny thing is, even once it, it, it goes back to that whole idea of uh, Constantine as a sociopath, because maybe in the moment it feels like it's this noble thing where he says, I'm nothing but trouble, so she should just stay away from me. So even though we're gonna arrange this date, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna ghost her, you know. Yeah. But once once he solves his his infection, once he heals himself, he has this moment of epiphany where he tells himself, "Oh, you know, people should be willing to be vulnerable with other people, and they should yeah. be willing to <laughs> like where's that coming from now?" <laughs> yeah. It's it almost feels like it's this convenience that he tells himself just so he can make it okay for himself to go back to her, to be mm-hmm. with her, only to leave her again some at some point down the road, 
you know, when things get tough again. Yeah. You know? And if you think about it, him acknowledging that he's a bastard and that bad things happen to people that get close to him, if he knew that all along, why did he get with her in the beginning? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, why does he wait until it's convenient for him to finally, you know, nobly come to that decision? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> it just goes to show you what kind of person he is, man. Yeah. If you had a sister, you wouldn't want her to meet He's him. He's a windsock. He's basically a windsock. Like, <laughs> just purely based on how he feels in any given moment, he's willing to change his perspective on a particular topic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Another yeah, interesting so. thing is that pretty much shortly after... Um, these stories after uh, Scab Milligan introduces another uh, woman into Constantine's Constantine's life, and he ends up getting married. So by the end of the run, like the rest of Milligan's run, is he's with this woman named Epiphany. Thought it was funny how you used the word Epiphany later earlier. <laughs> that is. That is pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and did we mention that Milgan was... Yeah, he was like the last writer before the series mm -hmm. officially closed out. In, he wrote it from issue 250 to 300, the last issue. Yeah. Technically, issue 250 was a jam issue where a bunch of different writers from different eras of Hellblazer wrote stories. So I guess his his real the real beginning to his run is 251, but he wrote those last 50 issues, and part of those part of that time he was also writing uh, Justice League Justice Dark. Dark. <laughs> yeah, I mean I don't, I don't mind Justice League Dark. The the that first arc that Milligan wrote was pretty entertaining. I mean I'm pretty sure he was doing it. Because, you know, it was an honest paying job. Yeah. It beats robbing banks. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, he, he is my favorite comic book writer. So I, don't, I definitely don't begrudge him that. It's just when you read the, uh, that Constantine and this Constantine, there's a world of difference, you know? Yeah. Well, that's the thing about these characters, though, is he, he, as much as you want the, the range and freedom to write what you want, uh, because they're established characters owned by corporate entities, there is literally only so much you can do, you know, and yeah. only so much that they at the end of the day, they get to they get to dictate the terms. And, yeah, uh, you know, I think on some on some level, maybe the fact that the Vertigo series got canceled I, I guess that allowed him to give it to give Constantine an ending finality. You know? Yeah. Because yeah. unlike a lot of other comic book characters, Constantine, he actually aged throughout the series. So he was, I don't know, he starts off in in his, I don't know, his 20s or something when he shows up in Swamp Thing and he continues to age so that by the time we get to the end of the Vertigo run, it's, what, around 2012 or 2013, maybe? 
So he's he's like pushing 60 by that point. Mm. Or somewhere around that age. Interesting. Yeah. Well, when you get the final issues, I I'm gonna, I feel like I'm going to have to go on a deep dive and just read them. Yeah, totally, man. Once I get those last few issues of Hellblazer that I need, I'm going to like set aside some time and just read 1 through 300. <laughs> <laughs> that is going to be friggin' epic, dude. Yeah. All right. I do have a couple more short stories to to bring up before we get out of here. But for for anyone who who doesn't have time to or the interest to read a long one of the longer stories that we mentioned, there are a couple of done in one stories that you might want to check out, maybe on Comixology or whatever. But look up Hellblazer number one hundred. That's a really good anniversary issue. It, it this one is written by Paul Jenkins with art by Sean Phillips. And Sean Phillips is he's probably my favorite comic book artist i would say like overall so this is definitely some really good storytelling from a visual perspective and paul jenkins does a great job crafting the the story so hellblazer number 100 is a story about constantine and his father it's the story is called sins of the father and it's about constantine basically falling into a comma a coma and, comma. <laughs> yeah, he gets trapped and gets surrounded by all these Oxford commas, and the grammar just destroys his soul. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> the, the Oxford comma demon comes for my, him. <laughs> my one, my mortal enemy. We meet again. Oxford comma. <laughs> Yeah, he falls into a coma and it it becomes this exploration where he's he's talking with this demon and how this uh and it's all about his relationship with his father. That's really what it is and and he's a guy who has who definitely has daddy issues. His father basically treated him like crap as a, when he was growing up. Like his whole back Constantine's backstory is when he was born he had a twin, a twin, I forget if it was a brother or a sister, but he had a twin that he he basically killed this twin in the womb by choking him out or something. I forget if they actually said he choked him out, but I just know that he somehow killed his twin in the womb and when he when he was born, his mother ended up dying. So his father was resentful of him pretty much his whole life as he was growing up and he he's in this coma and this demon is messing with him and sh- showing him his he, he gets to have one conversation with his father and his father is basically trapped by this demon and the only way that his father can get free is if constantine grants him forgiveness <laughs> Isn't that such a messed up premise? <laughs> yeah. That, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to spoil how it ends because it's, it's it's definitely worth reading. It just feels messed up top to bottom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> and then one more done in one story. 
This issue is another Peter Milligan comic. It's the Hellblazer annual from 2011. And the artist is Simon Beasley. So you know it looks really good. This is a story about... It's called Suicide Bridge. And the story is another story about how being close to Constantine is bad. How bad is it? This story is about a kid who knew Constantine back in the 60s when, you know, when they were little kids. Constantine basically leads this kid to, I mean, not directly, but because of his selfishness and desire for his own self-preservation, he causes this kid that he knew to jump off a bridge. And it's not just a normal bridge, but it's a haunted bridge where he's like, eternally trapped in this cycle of death (laughs) (laughs) what (laughs) it's another pretty messed up story and the this this boy's mother she's on her on her deathbed and somehow constantine uh is able to see her and she apparently like and everybody else nobody else really knows that this kid jumped off this bridge like as far as the world knows he just went missing so she wants constantine to find her son before before she passes basically and yeah he he knows what he did and he just (laughs) he just ends up lying to her wow (laughs) that's uh Yeah. I don't know why I find that so funny. (laughs) And this guy, he gets to hang out with Superman now. Yeah. Him and Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman, they're all pals. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, there are so many great Constantine stories. I mean, we've only alluded to stuff like the Garth Ennis run and the Jamie Delano stuff, but... Every, I feel like every run on Hellblazer was great stuff, you know? Like, yeah. they're like maybe the weakest thing would be the maybe the Andy Diggle run, but like everybody else, I have I have so much regard for, for all of their work, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's why it was just such a hard comic to put on our top 25 list you know it was just a murderous row of just talent you know yeah if, if we were to just put series on the list this would be on the list yeah like pound for pound i don't know if there's another series where you can find 300 consecutive issues all by different you know create a, a company owned a, a corporate owned comic that goes 300 issues where there's just such a high level of consistent quality all across the board. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you you look at any other long running series, whatever, whatever Batman title you want, detective comics or Spider-Man, amazing Spider-Man, uncanny X-Men, try and find 300 straight issues where the quality is this high. I don't think there are high points and low points. Exactly. Exactly. That's just how it is except with Hellblazer, for some reason, man, like, this comic just brought out the best in people. 
Yeah. They were trying... They were trying to to create something that was good, and that effort shows, you know? And, mm-hmm. like, and I don't even just mean the writers, like... The artists. And, and the artists. Artists, I mean... I, I don't know what the editorial process was or the stuff behind the scenes, but... You know, they they left it alone and allowed it uh, allowed it to flourish as it was mm-hmm. for all those years, till they finally decided to crush it beneath their heel. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it wasn't too long after they ended Hellblazer that they killed off Vertigo. Yeah, yeah, it was just a it was just a bad time for for DC and. I think uh, you could argue that they're still kind of recovering, or... Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's something. <laughs> we can hope that they're recovering. Yeah. Yeah. You got any uh, other thoughts? I feel like we, uh, we've we covered it pretty well. Pretty Hopefully satisfied. We've given people a, a varied taste of the different Hellblazer stories that we really like. Yeah. But, you know, again, just would want to emphasize that you can't really go wrong with any Hellblazer story. Yeah. At the at the very least, you'll get a story that stimulates your mind. Yeah. Maybe I could understand if someone's not interested in reading Hellblazer just because of the the tone of the material. Like this is definitely not some feel good, wholesome kind of stuff. Oh yeah. 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 If you're but, squeamish or if you just don't yeah. like yeah, the graphic nature of it, then there's not much that I can do. We can do for you if that's the case. Maybe you know? uh, we can recommend that other comic you were talking about, the the one where John Constantine sucks lollipops in the kids comic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The... I, I kind of want to read that now. I gotta look that one up. What do I, you know what it's called, Albert? I have read quite a few of those DC comics for kids, and most of them are pretty good, actually. Like I actually found them more entertaining than a lot of the normal or mainstream superhero books that they've been doing. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, I don't look at that, and I wouldn't consider that Hellblazer or John Constantine, you know, at all, because it's so different, right? But Mm -hmm. I I can appreciate it as its own thing. Yeah. Yeah, and looking at it, it's called The Mystery of the Meanest Teacher. A Johnny, a Johnny Constantine graphic novel. Nice, I like oh, that. It's by Ryan North and Derek Charm. Okay, okay. Yeah. Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, right? Yep, I believe that's him. Yeah, that that makes sense then. Yeah, I'm willing to check it out, and even if it didn't feel right, I wouldn't necessarily grade it against the fact that it has to be compared to Hellblazer or Constantine because it, it obviously isn't, you know? Yeah. But you know what? I'd, I'd check it out in spite of, uh, you know, my personal opinions on the unbeatable squirrel girl. Squirrel girl. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, man. All right. Well, I think we're, we've come to a good place. Just let me put our socials out there. If anyone wants to ask us any questions or, you know, provide us with any recommendations or your own input on Hellblazer, please feel free to do so. You can email us at between the, the gutters podcast at gmail.com or 
you can uh, DM us on our social, on our Instagram at uh, Between the Gutters on Instagram. And uh, yeah, let us know, you know. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear what other people's favorite Hellblazer stories are. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. This is Between the Gutters. Peace out. Peace out, guys. have a funny question albert uh uh i did not did you anything bueller nothing oh man (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah i got nothing dude (laughs) story of my life i got nothing